Good morning. It is June 28th. I'm Larry Castle, and with me is Ken Brown, and this is episode four of That's a Good Question. So here we are, three weeks in, and uh, talking about the subject, the question of uh, how does the church deal with race issues? And uh, you've spent a good bit of time sharing with us uh, history behind this question. And uh, we've, we've talked about a lot of good that has been, been done, laws that have been passed, Supreme Court decisions that have been made, all to outlaw uh, racism, to make blatant racism illegal. And yet sometimes we hear people talk about a term systemic mm. racism. So what, what do we mean? How should we think about this term, systemic racism? Now, we really need to uh, define what we mean by systemic because I have heard so many people uh, use that term and use it in, in different ways. Uh, many people hear that when they hear systemic racism, they hear legal racism. And then, knowing what you just said, that there have been all these laws passed and Supreme Court decisions that have been made, they say, well, no, there's no systemic racism because it's all been outlawed. So thinking of it as legal discrimination, discrimination is illegal, and that's a, a great development, uh, to put it mildly. So I think it would be better to think of systemic racism as something like uh, infectious racism, that uh, our society, our culture is still infected by racism or legacy racism, that we're still dealing with the vestiges of what has happened in the past. And some of those things are still baked into our institutions, the way we do things, the habits that have mm -hmm. formed over many years. Mm -hmm. And it has then an uh, unintended, very often, but nevertheless, a deleterious effect on uh, Af African-American citizens. I mean, take for example the redlining that I mentioned mm, right. last week. Well, that put people in particular places on purpose. Well, that legacy still remains, and that affects then uh, the quality of education, health issues as well, opportunities. So, so redlining is not allowed anymore, but the effects of that continue on. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. So that's been outlawed, but we still have the legacy of that, and so that's why I prefer personally uh, the legacy of, of racism. The video link that we recommended last week had a number of data points in it that underscore uh, how this continues to happen. So I'd like to take a few minutes and just go through some of those. Uh, one example was a law in Georgia that permitted prosecutors to seek life imprisonment for a second drug offense. Now over the period of the study, this law was used against 1% of white second-time offenders, but 16% of black second-time mm. offenders. And as a result of that, 98% of the prisoners who were serving life sentences under that law were black. African-American youth in the United States make up just 16% of all youth, but 28% of all juvenile arrests, 35% of youth who are sent to adult court instead of juvenile court, and 58% of youth who are admitted to adult state prisons. Blacks in New Jersey who are riding in their cars on the New Jersey Turnpike make up just 15% of all drivers, but get this 42% of all stops by police hmm. and 73% of all arrests. 
Among all drivers stopped, white drivers were two times more likely than black drivers to actually be carrying drugs. In Volusia County, Florida, 5% of drivers were black or Latino, but 80% of drivers stopped were black or Latino. And then in Oakland, California, black drivers are twice as likely as white drivers to be stopped and three times more likely to be searched. In Minneapolis, a few years ago, Philando Castile was pulled over, over his uh, adult lifetime, he was pulled over 49 times in 13 years. Wow. Most of those were for minor infractions. But the 49th time that he was pulled over, he was shot and killed in his car by an officer. And the reason that he was pulled over, believe it or not, was for a broken taillight. Mm -hmm. So that's the driving while black thing that you'll, you'll yeah, hear. Yeah. And that's some of the reasons then why you hear that. And then this unconscious bias seeps also into to schools. White teachers often assume black students are less intelligent than they really are. A gifted student usually has to be recommended by a teacher to move to a gifted track. When a teacher's black, an, equally, an equal number of gifted white and black students have opportunities to go into those tracks. But when the teacher is white, the black student's odds of being recommended are cut in half. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the white teachers are racist? No, but does it mean that they come to it with a bias, mm -hmm. even an unconscious bias? Yeah, that is the case, and it affects black students every day. Hmm. See, so uh, related to this, you know, there's the, the common phrase, black lives matter. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah. it seems uh, objectively, an objectively true statement mm -hmm. Uh, that should be easy to affirm by anyone, right. but uh, many folks feel compelled to uh, give all kinds of qualifications or, you know, uh, are hesitant to use the phrase. Why is that? Yeah. Why, why do we see this caution? What, is, what should we right. think about that? Right. Well, we have to differentiate between the truth and it certainly is a truth, that Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And then there is an organization by that name, Black Lives Matter, with a trademark, with a website, uh, with an agenda, uh, whether you agree with that agenda or, or not. I'll give some reasons why there are aspects of it that we as Christians cannot, cannot agree with. So that's why you see some of that hesitance. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk in a minute about some of those objectionable elements of the organization that is Black Lives Matter. But I think that we, as Christian people representing the Lord, we should not first get into all of that. When somebody says Black Lives Matter, or you see a sign Black Lives Matter, or somebody asked you, do Black Lives Matter, you don't need to get, launch into a lecture about the organization mm -hmm. and the things that you find objectionable with it. Just affirm immediately, Black Lives Matter. Absolutely Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And you also don't have to add immediately, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. That's, of course, true. But in this setting, with all that's going on, the idea is if, if all lives matter, then we want to make sure that black lives are included in that. Mm -hmm. And especially focusing on black lives because of statistics like we're talking about here, because of some of the uh, uh, murders that have happened over the last uh, few years. And so don't feel the necessity to qualify it so soon. Mm -hmm. Just say and affirm Black Lives Matter. I, I, um, 
this reminds me of something I read recently. I forget the exact illustration that was given, but uh, it was the comparison was made to someone who is ill and another person saying, I hope you feel better soon. Mm. And another person in the room objecting on the basis of, well, why don't you hope I feel better yeah. soon? But but they're not sick. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. We were talking about something like that, and I was talking about somebody being injured, and then we were dealing with uh, using that illustration. That that's might, not the one you're thinking that, of? No, I, well, I do remember that now that okay. you say that, but right. I remember reading something but I like, similar to that. I like that one better. <laughs> But the Black Lives Organization, Black Lives Matter Organization, on its website, it says things like this, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Hmm. And it says as well, quote, our intention is to free ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Hmm. That is, we want to free ourselves from the idea that heterosexuality is the norm. Well, here's the problem. You know, that so-called Western prescribed nuclear family happens to be the Bible's description of what a family is, and it is a fact that heterosexuality is the norm mm -hmm. according to God's Word. So we have to affirm that. We have to reject those elements of the Black Lives Matter organization, but we should readily affirm without qualification, without having to talk about the organization, without having to say all lives matter, black lives matter. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, we've been discussing over these last couple of weeks um, this subject in order to get to how the church has been affected by racism and uh, how we need to think about this since we're people uh, whose purpose it is to spread the gospel. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, there have been, uh, unfortunately, whole denominations and Christian, Christian institutions that have been built over many decades on racist principles. For, as an example, the Southern Baptist Convention was actually formed uh, during the period of slavery and just before the Civil War and formed over an argument, a split about slavery. Now, for many decades, there was a counterpart to that called the Northern Baptist mm -hmm. Convention. So just like you had the North and the South in the Civil War, you had uh, a a denomination, two denominations of Baptist churches that were split originally along the same lines. Uh, the conservative, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Presbyterian church in America. So overall, this is a, this is a, a good denomination. Uh, but they are dealing now with trying to reconcile their racist uh, past uh, as well. Uh, let me give an, another example of how this is, uh, and, there, and there are many, but how this has infected the church and religious institutions and otherwise Bible-believing people, colleges, and so on. And this is, this is related, I neglected to say earlier, this is related to your recent blog article, what you're mm -hmm. describing here, that you, you said that racism is a stain on the church. Yes. This is what you're talking about. That's right, yeah, that, uh, that this stain has been long-lasting, goes back a long way, and we're still, try, still trying to deal with it. Thankfully, we are dealing with it, but we're still struggling with that. Mm -hmm. So going back to the Civil War, just as another example, there was a, a guy named Robert Dabney. And Dabney was uh, the assistant to the Confederate General uh, Stonewall Jackson. He was also a chaplain for the uh, Confederate Army. He would later become a renowned uh, theologian 
a prodigious writer. When I was in seminary, I learned about Dabney, and his books were, were recommended, but mm -hmm. I had no idea until years later that he was a virulent racist. After the war, he wrote a book called A Defense of Virginia, in which he said black people are, quote, morally, a morally inferior race, well. and, quote, a sordid alien taint marked by, quote, lying, theft, drunkenness, laziness, and waste. Hmm. He considered slavery to be, again, quote, the righteous, the best, yea, the only tolerable relation between blacks and whites. He condemned the, quote, abhorrent amalgamation of white children with blacks. And he actually argued that it was better for blacks to be enslaved than not, since it was better for their minds and their health. Wow. He called the attempt to educate all Negroes mischievous, tyrannical, useless, impractical, and dishonest. But what's really amazing, okay, so you've got a guy, goes back to the Civil War days, but what's really amazing is how many people still today promote him in recent years. Some of our listeners are in the uh, homeschool uh, environment, homeschool movement, and if so, you'll recognize the name uh, Doug Phillips. Each of us at one time had our children, were homeschooling our children, mm -hmm. and so we were familiar with Doug Phillips and his organization, Vision Forum, uh, that imploded after Doug Phillips' uh, immorality was discovered. But Vision Forum was a Christian organization. It uh, promoted homeschooling and patriarchy in the home. It was wildly popular with uh, people in the church and churches churches even like ours. But he called Dabney, this guy that I was quoting, he called him, quote, the greatest Southern theologian in the 19th century, and, quote, the prophet of the South, defender of the South. He praises Dabney for, quote, being bold enough to say things that others today are afraid to say. And he edited a book called Robert Louis Dabney, The Prophet Speaks. Now, some of our listeners might be familiar with yet another Doug, uh, Douglas Wilson. He blogs, he writes, he's a pastor in Idaho, he's a very intelligent guy, has a lot of profound uh, things to say. But he also has a fondness for slavery. He actually, Douglas Wilson has written a defense of, of slavery. And he has an associate, Steve Wilkins, uh, who writes in praise of Robert Dabney. Now I should add, in giving that history, that the Southern Baptist Convention, I said earlier that the Presbyterian Church in America, so many of these institutions are now grappling with this and they're trying to put that in the past. They've apologized for the racist past. But it is there, and it's only been in the last few years that those organizations have started to come to grips with that past and started to try to make amends for it. Hmm. So, I mean, as I think about this, why, why do Christians of all people have a problem with this. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't. That's, that's why the question, right? Yeah. Of all people. But, you know, Larry, we, we sin when we allow the world to give us our cues rather mm -hmm. than the Word of God. And that has, is, is what has happened. We have, over decades, uh, Christian institutions, churches, Christian people have chosen to conform to the norms of the world rather than the requirements of the Word of God. And the Word of God is clear that God made only one race, mm -hmm. that all are created equally in God's image, 
that Christ died for humanity without regard to race, so that when folks come into the church and come into relationship with Christ, according to Galatians 3.28, then there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ, and yet that has not been the case over many, many years because in this instance, at least, we've listened to the voice of the world rather than the voice of God mm -hmm. in Scripture. Now, sometimes what I've heard with regard to that, because I've had lots of discussions about it with uh, friends who, um, who have a fondness for maybe the school they went to, and that school may have had a racist past like this, and so they're trying to defend it as best they can, and they'll say things like this. They'll say, look, you've got to understand that they were that they were people of their times. Mm -hmm. I've heard that multiple times over the years. They were, they were men and women, people of their times. And so one such school in the, in the South, and I'm not going to name the school because it has taken great pains to get away from its racist past, but, and it's also graduated some of the finest people that I've ever met in, in my life as, as well. And yet its late founder and his successor son preached strict segregation. And at one time, the campus had a men's dorm that was named after an Alabama governor who was also a leader in the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. Now, they've changed that. They've changed the name of that. But that school did not allow blacks admission into the school until 1970. Mm -hmm. You know, so just 50 years ago. And so the Civil Rights Act had passed and all of that. And still, they were not allowing blacks admission, and they didn't allow interracial dating mm -hmm. until the year 2000, until that was kind of forced upon them. Now, because I know so many people who attended there, we'd often have these discussions about policies on race, and I heard many times some variation of that they were people of the times. Mm -hmm. And I'd be told that there was a nearby university, secular university in that same area, and they would say things like, you know, they didn't start admitting blacks until just a few years before that. Mm -hmm. Now think about that argument. Mm -hmm. The argument is, well, we're, you know, we're almost as good as what the world was doing. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah, they somehow beat us to the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so to answer your question then, how are Christians of all people doing this? It, there's no way around it. The only answer to that is we allowed the norms of the culture, mm -hmm. the spirit of the age, to dictate how we behaved rather than the requirements of the Word of God. And that's, that's really just the opposite of mm. oftentimes people voicing these opinions, perspectives, yeah. would actually claim that oh, they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so what do we as Christians affirmatively do about this? Well, we have got to... Uh, get out of the denial business. I mean, we just have to be frank about what has happened and then repent. You know, the, the Bible has a very clear prescription for what we do uh, when sin has been committed. You, know, you confess it, you say the same thing God says about it, you acknowledge it, uh, but then you turn from it. But as long as we're denying it, we're not going to confess it. If we don't confess it, then we can't repent of it. Now, I've heard, so the first thing is just stop the denial. Get out of the denial business. And I've heard many times in the last few weeks, uh, preachers say, Christians say, you know, the gospel takes all of this 
away. So that once someone is in Christ, they should no longer be concerned about racial disparities. And frankly, I think, and it may sound strange to say that, but I think that is a form of this denialism. Because to simply say, but once someone comes to Christ, all of that's gone. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a sense in which I believe that. Although, none of us actually believes that when one comes to Christ, all of the trauma of their past immediately goes away. Right. You know, someone who has been abused in the past, they come to Christ. What a marvelous thing. They now have the ability to look upon what has happened to them in a radically different way. And they are beginning the process of having their past redeemed. Mm -hmm. But it's a process. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. So even to say that is a form of denying the reality of the ongoing legacy of, of what has happened. But it also confuses two categories. Yes, it's true that when one comes to Christ, everything other than Christ and our position in Him becomes secondary. That's the most important thing to us. But hear this, my concern is not just with how Christians deal with these issues after they become Christians, but I'm concerned with how our testimony is affected in our quest to see other people become Christians. Yeah, that's really why we're talking about this. That's why yeah. we're airing it. You know, yeah. yes, we're yeah. trying to educate we're trying to educate ourselves, we're trying to educate our viewership so that we can be better, more effective witnesses for Christ by mm -hmm. understanding what's happened, by by caring about what's happened, and so that we can incorporate that into our relational evangelism. And so it's not gonna do for us to to say the gospel takes care of all of that. When how we handle issues like this can have a direct bearing on our effectiveness with the gospel message. If we're not deemed credible when we say, hey, God loves you, mm -hmm. and we won't be deemed credible, to say, hey, let me tell you about a God who loves you. If they don't see that I love you, that I care for you, that I'm empathetic to what you've been through, then we will not be effective in our evangelistic efforts. That makes, that makes sense. So then... Um, one of the concerns will be and should be then, how do we avoid making our efforts in the gospel, social gospel or social justice gospel? Because that can, uh, I think folks may rightly be concerned that that is a potential distraction. Right. So how do we avoid that? Yeah. Well, for the, the sake of our, our viewers, uh, the social gospel is an actual term uh, from the turn of the, the last century, really. And it was an idea that took hold in, in many places within the, the church that the objective of the church, the objective of the Great Commission, was really to reform society, to see unjust structures taken down and reversed, and so doing good works, deeds of mercy on behalf of those uh, in our communities, this became the sum and substance of the good news, that Christ has come to free you from these shackles, but these were societal shackles. They weren't spiritual shackles. Mm -hmm. And so many good works were born out of that, humanitarian kinds of works that we would all, uh, all applaud. But unfortunately, what happened is it actually took the place of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And as a result, those uh, organizations and denominations that got involved with that, and I could name those for you, but I won't bore you with it for sake of time, 
but they became extremely liberal denominations because over time, if you are not regularly bringing yourself back to the main thing, right. then you will forget the main thing. And you forget the gospel, you're forgetting spiritual life. You're forgetting regeneration. You're forgetting what makes men and women new. Mm -hmm. And when you forget that, then you just have a dead organization that's doing good things. And the church, of course, is called to much more than that. So we have to keep job one as the priority. Yes, we need to know these things. We need to know these things about the past. We need to empathize. We need to own what's happened. Get out of the denial business. But with all of that, it's for the purpose of having credibility when we are giving the gospel. Mm. So we cannot get distracted by lesser things. And I, and I say that because I guarantee you, with the emphasis that we've had over these last several weeks, that we will have folks who will write in or people who are in our church will say to us, well, hey then, what's our call to action mm -hmm. now to, to change the culture around us, to change the society around us? And we're going to say, you know, the call to action is the gospel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but the gospel brought by people who have the kind of understanding that we've tried to lay out here so that we can demonstrate, yes, care for what someone's gone through, but also offer them the ultimate solution uh, to what they've gone through or are going through. So we cannot get distracted by lesser things. And friends, I, I will tell you this, as passionate as I've been over these last few weeks and in writing on the blog about our need to not dismiss what has happened to our black brothers and sisters in this country and to show the love of Christ by seeking to understand, uh, as passionate as I've been about that, please understand this as well, that getting involved in and making your life's mission to make societal wrongs right mm -hmm. is still a distraction from the gospel. It's still one of those lesser things I was talking about. Now that may come as a shock, but I believe it. When I say don't get distracted by lesser things, if the thing, if job one is the gospel, then what are the lesser things? <laughs> Everything else. Mm -hmm. Everything else is a lesser thing. Not unimportant, but lesser. And not unimportant, but not as important right, right. as the gospel, right? Or I should say not, not irrelevant, and, but not, not and, our and chief goal. Exactly. Yeah. Now, those, but those things and our understanding of those things and our empathy with regard to those things will have an effect on how we carry out the most important thing. Right. And that's what we're trying to, to demonstrate here, that priority does not require a disjunction. Yes, there's a difference between the gospel and what's happening in society. It's not the social gospel. Mm -hmm. But because there's a difference between those two, doesn't mean that they have to be uh, completely separated. In fact, I would contend that if you completely separate them, again, you will be less effective in your giving of the gospel. The gospel is the priority, and the church cannot be distracted by other things that compete with it. But in order to be effective evangelists, we have to have credibility with those to whom we're giving the gospel. And credibility requires that we clearly reflect 
Christ. If the community, in our case in Trenton, Michigan, in southeast Michigan, downriver uh, Michigan here, if our community has a distorted view of who we are, mm -hmm. then they'll have a distorted view of the Lord that we represent. Mm -hmm. So if we know people have a false understanding about us, if they associate us with the racist past that we've gone through here and we've talked about, and they think that's the way we are, if they have a false understanding about that, then we have an obligation to seek to change that understanding by demonstrating something different. But again, for the sake of the gospel. If people have misunderstandings about who Christians are, then we should do something like this famous letter in the second century of the church. A letter to, it's called the Letter to Diognetus. You probably remember mm -hmm. that from mm -hmm. college, but uh, it's a letter written by an anonymous Christian to someone named Diognetus who was a detractor from Christianity. And Diognetus had made all these accusations about Christians, and this thoughtful Christian took the time to write and to explain the truth about Christianity. Mm -hmm. Why? For the sake of gospel witness. We've got to do the same thing. Yeah, so you and you've kind of spoken to this already, but so that is for me as a Christian mm -hmm. to be thoughtful in the way I live and interact on these current affairs, these current issues. But what about us as a church? Okay. What about us? Yeah. So as a personally, individually versus corporately in yeah. the congregation. Yeah. So yeah, it's primarily something that we do individually in our witness in our circle of influence that God providentially brings us into. However. Uh, I don't dismiss a congregational action when it will strategically help us with our gospel witness. Tying into mission. So Gal Galatians uh, 6.10, Galatians 6.10 says, uh, as you have opportunity, it says, do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Hmm. So as you have opportunity, do good to everybody. But prioritize, especially those who are of the household of faith. So prioritize your, your social good, your benevolence toward those who are in the, the family of God. But as you have opportunity, uh, do good to those outside as well. And, and I, would, I would suggest that there may be times where we take collective action as a, as a witness to the world that we care about the plight of the world. And that's why we preach the message we do. That's, that, is, that, that gives the promise of a better way to live in this world, but also a better world to come. And so just as an example, if you have a disaster that occurs, uh, we may well want to organize a group of people to go and help in a humanitarian way with that. But why would we do that? We do it not as an end in itself, mm -hmm. but as a means to represent Christ in order to give the gospel. So whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in our, the corporate life of the church, all of it is for the purpose of advancing the gospel. Hmm. Keeping that hierarchy that exactly. what's serving what is the key to that. Yes. Well, this has been very profitable three weeks mm -hmm. uh, discussion. And uh, thank you for putting so much thought into this and the helpful review of history. And then uh, wrapping this all up in some very practical application for us. Uh, any final comments as we wrap up this series? Well, I would, one, thank... For these last three weeks, I thank our viewers for, uh, for watching and uh, taking all of that in. And I would encourage you to take it to heart, to think about the, the history and then 
do not be dismissive then about that. Uh, if, you, if you don't mind, just for you, you made the mistake of asking. So just <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, because uh, what, I, what I hear, we touched on this at the beginning of the last episode, but what I often hear from folks in our circles is, hey, look, the reason these problems are happening, happening in the African-American community is because of personal responsibility or liberal government policies that, that, that have had unintended ill effects. Mm -hmm. That's what I've heard most of my life. Yeah. And so I'm saying, don't be dismissive like that. Those are real. I believe both of those. I believe both of those are major parts of the equation. They're just not the entire equation. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to look at the entire equation, you're going to have to think about the things we've covered over these last uh, episodes. And I'm saying, brothers and sisters, do that so that now you have a real understanding of why others see it as they do, respond as they do. And so now we can empathize, we can care, we can show the love of Christ, and then have some credibility when we give the gospel. Well, I think that's a good way to end it. And uh, thank you again uh, for spending these weeks with us. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.